Uh, let me pray for us and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hour, which is a gift to us, um, that we can look into your word and be encouraged, uh, not simply to fill our heads, although it is good to know more deeply, but also that we may love you more and that we may stand in awe of your salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, Last part of glorification, uh, last part of the ordo salutis, which means uh, order of salvation, um, which is our glorification, and uh, and uh, so the first part is um, going to be a setup for the second part, which will be a little bit more controversial. I have this weird quirk in me that I like to go for the controversy, but I think that uh, um, it'll be beneficial and helpful to you guys. So, let's start. Number one, glorification is the end goal of salvation. Uh, Dom, can I have you read Romans 8? We, re- we actually started the series with Romans 8, and we're going to end, of course, with Romans 8. Okay. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right. So, that's the end goal. Like, what are we saved for? Um, we're not just saved from sin and death and... Uh, um, and uh, a lostness, but we're saved onto the glory of Christ. And if you think of sanctification, which Wade talked about last week, as this journey, glorification is the destination that we're on this journey towards, right? And so, uh, what about the word glory? Glory is one of those words that are actually very hard to define. Um, it means honor, splendor, acclaim. And so, let me just give you two quick examples. Let me first give you a contemporary example. Um, glory is that feeling and it's that place when, for example, a sports team wins a game. Right? So uh, I didn't watch the game, but I read a little bit about it. Right? So last night's A's game, right? I imagine, since it was uh, scoreless all the way up to the ninth inning, there was an enormous tension in the stadium. Everyone's with bated breath waiting for the resolution. And then finally, when, uh, is it Vogt? How do you even pronounce that guy? <laughs> I think they, I think they pronounce it Voight, but I'm not sure. Voight, okay, yeah. Voight. Um, when he finally hit the uh, the winning run, right, the whole stadium explodes. What is that sensation? What is that feeling that that is there? That's glory, right? The, it's a victory. So let me, well, let me just add that word, victory. Right, when you vanquish your enemy, and in the ancient world, glory had a, actually a much more specific meaning. Welcome, um, which is when a king went out, right? So let's say a, a city was being threatened by this foreign army. Now, none of us have ever experienced this, but you have to understand in the ancient world, this was a very serious business. Because if, if uh, you lose the battle, what's going to happen? You're going to die. They're going to come into your city, and what are they going to do? They're going to kill the men. They're going to take your wives and children. You're going to decimate that city, right? And so your king goes out. And then when he comes back and he wins the battle, it's incredible. Like whatever you, whatever you might feel in the World Series, the final game, is nothing compared to the feeling that you would have as an ancient person in the city waiting for your king to come back in victory, right? And so the king comes riding back. Let me see if I can draw a horse. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so there's the king, right? And he's coming back with his army, right? And 
always, not always, but very often you come back and you would bring someone in chains. I don't know if I could draw this. You would bring back your vanquished enemy in chains. And you would march him into the city. And 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 all the all the people come out. Every single person comes out because this is an incredible moment. Everyone's just cheering and screaming. And that's the this image of glory that we have given to us, uh, particularly um, in the ancient world, right? Um, and and so this is called a triumphal entry. So this is very important because we're going to keep coming back to this again and again. Triumphal entry. And if you, um, next point, in some profound way, oh, wait, wait, wait. So, who is this enemy? So, 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 um, going back to this image that we have of the triumphal entry, right, who is our victorious king coming back? It's God, right? He vanquishes the enemy, and who then is the enemy? The enemy is evil. Okay? And we're gonna fill that out and flesh that out a little bit more. Um, evil, sin, Satan, okay? Um, there's a there's a handout right. Um, and then the next point, in some profound way, we will enter into and participate in this glory, right? The glory goes to God, but it's not just God; it's ours as well. And I chose First Peter five because it is the most a clear. It clearly states this without giving away the answer, because I want to give away the answer later. So I want to hold it back a little bit. First Peter chapter five. Jeff, can I have you read just? Uh, the first verse. So I ex- exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Yeah, we're going to be partakers, right? The word partaker there is koinonia, which means fellowship. We're going to share in the king's glory, right? And then the next verse, Jeff. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Yeah, so not only the king receives the glory, you know, in, in, the, in the ancient Roman world, when the king, when the emperor comes back, they would give him a wreath, right, a, a crown, and as this uh, reward, as this victor's crown, we will also receive that. You might say, well, that's just speaking to elders. Um, that's not true. All of us, all Christians will receive this. Second Corinthians, um, Ryan, can you read that? For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yeah, this is a very famous verse. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying, first of all, he's talking about this life as slight momentary affliction. He's not at all making light of the sufferings of this time. He's saying, um, even though it's incredibly painful and difficult, compared to this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, it is slight. Right? And so somehow, all the pain and all the affliction, all the tears, is getting us ready for this moment, right? All this, you know, like, if we can go back to the A's game, right? All that tension that you felt for nine innings in which you just wanted to die, right? The payoff is when you win, right? And so, uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I think just the, I just want to just rest on this incredible language, this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Right, the metaphor is the king returning back to the city in victory. But I want you guys to know that this glory that's awaiting us is beyond all description. It is beyond all comparison. It will make every tear and every tragedy in this life like it was compared to it like nothing. Right? Um, 
And then, so so that's so that's point number one. I just want to explain what is glory, okay? Glory is this victory that's awaiting us. The second point, the question then is when. So this is the rest of the time I'm going to talk about when, okay? When. And there's some degree of controversy about the when, okay? So uh, first we'll talk about the relatively non-controversial part. Um, when will this happen? When will we, we receive this glory? This glory will be revealed at the final resurrection. So let's read Romans chapter 8. Um, uh, where are we? Erica, I, I'm going to interrupt you frequently, so please read slowly. Okay. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yeah, stop right there. Does that verse seem familiar to you, Erica? Yes! Identical, right? So you see this pattern, right? Um, and what is the pattern? The pattern is that there is present suffering. Okay? And it'll lead to future glory. Okay? That's always the pattern. Um, and again, the comparison is that this future glory is so profoundly enormous that it will just swallow up as, as intense it is the sufferings of this time, the sorrowfulness of this time. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing <coughs> for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, wait. So let me write this down. So our future glory is somehow related to sonship. This is going to be an important concept. I'm going to keep going back to it. In some way... It's going to be our future glory. We're going to come into being sons. Aren't we already sons? Absolutely. But we have the already but not yet. We, we have the status of sons, but we don't have the full consummated, um, just the fullness of being sons, right? That's awaiting us. What does that mean? We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Okay, stop right there. So... It speaks of this time being a time of futility. What does futility mean, by the way, real quick? Yes, uselessness, purposelessness. So uh, it's marked by futility, but the future glory, we have hope. Now, the word hope uh, in our contemporary English usage is mostly like wishful thinking. Right? Like, I hope the A's win the World Series. Yeah, but that's not at all certain, right? Um but uh, hope in the, in the biblical sense means something that is absolutely going to happen. We know it, but we just don't have it yet. And we're waiting for it to come, right? And so that's the Christian hope, right? So the hope in the midst of our sufferings is this future glory awaiting us in which we will come into our sonship, right? Uh, go ahead, verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, keep going. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so couple more things, right? Um, we're told that this present uh, suffering is bondage. Slavery. And that the future glory is will be freedom. Okay, so this is very important. What is the bondage to, Erica? Sin. Well, look at the text. Decay. Decay. Okay, this is important. <clears throat> and the future glory will be freedom from this decay. Now, 
what does that mean? What, is, what, what are we talking about when we say that this present life, this present suffering is decay? What does decay mean? Breaking down. Yeah, when things break down, right? I mean, for me, what I think about is, um, like, I have a fruit bowl. If I leave fruit there too long without eating it, it just becomes this moldy, disgusting mess. And, of course, this word decay is evoking the passage in Genesis chapter 2, I believe, where God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, don't eat of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, or else what? What's the consequence? You will die, right? You will die. Now, Adam and Eve, of course, didn't physically die right away. So what what was that death? Well, there are two components to that death, right? There was a spiritual death. What do we mean by spiritual death? David, like consequence of disobedience is death. Oh, like you're condemned. Yeah, c- condemnation, right? Separation, alienation from God. But it's not just that. It's not just spiritual death. It's also physical death. Okay, so this is very important. Almost, we almost only think of it in terms of spiritual death, but physical death. This world, people were not supposed to die. When you experience death, you're not supposed to say, like the Lion King, it's just a grand circle of life, you know? We become fertilizer, and we go back to the earth, and we give life to trees. No. Death is something incredibly painful and everything in you, when somebody you love dies, everything in you screams, no, this is wrong, this is terrible, this is evil. And that's because it's the result of sin, it's the result of a rebellion against God, uh, because God is the only source of life. And so physical death, decay, all of these things are the effects, are the consequences of sin, right? And so let me just write this, it's, it's the effects of sin. Okay, why am I why am I harping on this? You're gonna see um, why it relates to our glory, um, and so we're gonna have freedom from this. Somehow we're gonna be released from this. That's our future glory, right? Uh, verse twenty-two. Um, Erica, keep reading. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. All right, so let's start right there. Paul met, then he switches gears a little bit. He throws in another metaphor. He says our future glory will be like a birth. And then he says, but in this present suffering, what's the uh, related image to this? Decay. Well, n- not decay, but what, what do you need to get to birth? Huh? No. I'm going to ask Erica. Huh? Groaning pains? pains? I'm looking for something a little bit more technical. There's groaning involved. Contraction. Yes, labor pains, right? <laughs> I think it's a wonderful image. I have personally witnessed two births, okay? It is excruciating. It's agony. It's screaming. It's tears. It's pain. It's cursing. (laughs) 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 Why is hard? She becomes a sailor all of a sudden. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then it leads to this beautiful thing called birth. This little baby. Oh, your heart is filled with joy and happiness. Um, Verse 23, keep going on. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for eagerly for adoptions as sons. Wait, wait, so, so let me let me let me stop right there, okay? So let me set this up, okay? So, what is this future glory? It's freedom from decay. It's birth after labor pains. And now Paul's going to tell us the answer in the uh, bold portion, right? He says, we, uh, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, right? We're going to come into our sonship, and there's the answer, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean, the redemption of our bodies? I think of it being made new again. I'm looking for a technical, that's good. Um, I'm looking for a technical word. I actually already gave it to you in the title. No, yes. Resurrection. Resurrection. Okay, (laughs) this right here is resurrection. Do you understand? Now listen to me, this is very important. Do you understand why resurrection is the glory that we're waiting for? Because what is resurrection? Resurrection, as, as, as uh, Wade says, is being made new. It's life renewed and restored. Physical life, bodily life. It says our bodies, right? Our bodies are in bondage. Do you know what your body is in bondage to? You guys are all younger than me, so let me tell you what's awaiting you. <laughs> Slow decay, okay? I have peaked. I don't know when it happened. But I realized I had peaked physically. And now, everything is just crumbling. I'm like that orange in my fruit bowl. And I'm just waiting for it to mold. And now I realize I must work out, not to get stronger, but to slow down the decay. Okay? I'm crumbling. I'm in slow motion death. It is bondage. Because I don't want that to happen. All of you, even you young people, even Amanda, who's the youngest, okay? You guys are a ticking time bomb. There's only so many ticks. No, I'm serious. There's only so many ticks in the clock left. And then you will expire and you will die. That's true. Okay? That is bondage. Bondage to decay. But guess what? There's an incredible, beautiful hope. We'll have freedom, which is resurrection. We will gain glorified bodies, right? We will be resurrected. Um, (laughs) And notice that in this whole discussion, the word creation is continually evoked. So it's not just talking about us individual human beings, but what is it talking about ultimately? What is the resurrection talking about when it keeps talking about creation? Yes, it's going to be... Cosmic renewal. The whole world is in decay, right? It keeps talking about that, right? All of creation was subjected to futility. All of creation is groaning, and then it's going to, the world is going to be rebirthed, renewed, restored, glorified, <coughs> heightened. It's going to be this experience of victory, um, of uh, acclaim, splendor, honor. And then let me read verse 24. Well, let, let me have Erica read it, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait. We wait for it with patience. Yeah, so the fact that we don't see it doesn't mean it's an invisible reality, this ethereal, cloudy reality. It just means it's not here yet. 
but we will definitely see it because it says redemption of our bodies, right? And so this is the resurrected future that we are awaiting. Um, so let me give a quick illustration. I have to give an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. Um, of course, you guys know in the Fellowship of the, of the Ring, the first movie, Gandalf dies in the mines of Moria. Like he falls fighting the Balrog. And then everyone's like, oh, no, so, so sad, so tragic, right? In the movie, I remember when I first watched the movie, I was like, why are they like, you know, like, they just seem so noble. But in the book, it really brings it out, uh, just in the incredible tragedy of it. And then fast forward to book three, right? Uh, Sam and uh, Frodo um, at last victoriously destroy the Ring of Power. And then they're brought back to safety. And the Sam is being healed, and, and he's, he's asleep. And he wakes up. And who does he see? The first person he sees is Gandalf. Right? And there's a famous line that Tolkien writes. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? I think Tolkien here is beautifully capturing what the resurrection is all about. Sam wakes up, and who does he see? The person he thought he was dead, Gandalf. But, but notice that Gandalf isn't old Gandalf the Grey. He's Gandalf the what? Yes, Gandalf the White. He's, he's more gloriously heightened. He's more powerful and then Sam is like in wonder. He's like, how can this be? And if he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? And what, what this is telling us is that somehow, see, this future glory is not going to be just like a consolation prize to the present suffering. Just to give a really terrible, terrible, inadequate metaphor, it's not like a, like a little boy who drops a bowl. The bowl shatters. <coughs> boy cries, oh, what a beautiful bowl. And then the parent says, oh, it's okay, here's a lollipop as a consolation. That's what we often think is our future glory. It's a consolation prize, right? I'm sorry your bowl is broken. Forget about that. Here's a lollipop. That's not what resurrection means. You know what resurrection means? The bowl will come back. It'll fit back. It'll be more glorious. It'll be greater. Everything sad will come untrue. Somehow, it's not just a consolation. It'll work backwards. It'll absorb everything, right? Because it's preparing for us. And all your tragedies, all your tears, all your disappointments, all your setbacks, everything that you've ever experienced that, that, that brought tears somehow will be sweeped up into the fabric of glory and it'll come untrue. All the sadness will be undone. The curse will be reversed. That's the glory waiting for us. Okay? And therefore, so next column, therefore... We do not enter into this glory at our death. Right? Because if that were the case, then each of us would enter into glory separately. Right? If I were to die tonight, I would enter into glory first, and you guys would have to wait. That would mean it's an individualized experience. Um, but this is where the Ordo Salutis intersects with something else called histo uh, the Historia Salutis. Okay, or another word for this is redemptive history. Historius Salutis is um, epic events in God's redemption of humanity. So there's, well, let's start at the beginning. What is, what is in the Historius Salutis? Creation, fall, and incarnation, right? So Jesus coming, crucifixion. Right? And then there's Jesus' resurrection, which is spoken of as the first fruits. And then the last res or the final resurrection. 
final resurrection and, and our glorification is the same event. Does that make sense? So we experience regeneration, we experience faith, we experience sanctification, justification, all of these individually. right? We all do it at different stages or steps. All of this happens to everybody all at once. This is the one place where it links up. And we don't enter into glory, into glory. We don't enter into this individually. We enter into it together. It's waiting in the future. It's the last day, right? the final day. Um, and the reason why is because remember this image of the king. Right? We said that the king goes out to battle. He fights the enemy. And we said, who is the enemy? It's evil. Let me fill it out a little bit more. The, the enemy is death. And until death is defeated, until Christ comes back as our victorious king with death in chains, death defeated, he has not secured the final victory, right? And so we see that, for example, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, where are we? Ashley, can I have you read that? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Yeah, that last uh, 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 verse 27 is actually a quote of Psalm 8 that uh, our future king, he will sit enthroned and at his feet will be everything, including death, Satan, sin, right, will be defeated. And so that cannot happen until death itself is in chains, which means it cannot happen until the resurrection, when death is reversed, death is defeated. And therefore, we cannot say when we die, we enter into glory, because how can we enter into glory when we're dead? Right now, um, uh, so in the Bible, this is called the intermediate state. This is a very clunky, inelegant term <laughs> that theologians have come up with. Um, this is called the intermediate state. So basically, for example, the thief on the cross, right? Jesus says, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Today, right? So what is he talking about? He's talking about heaven, of course, right? Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, so our souls will be with Christ, will be with God. We will enter into paradise, into bliss, into eternal happiness, but that's not the final hope. Our final hope, which is sort of parodied by the Simpsons, right? The Simpsons has a vision of heaven where, you know, God is walking around with these giant toga sandals, you know, (laughs) And we're all just up there floating in clouds, right? This ethereal existence. That is completely not the Christian hope. That's the intermediate state. The Simpsons should say, this is the Christian view of the intermediate state. (laughs) Okay? Because we're waiting for the resurrection. There's a wonderful passage in Revelation um, where the the, the martyred saints are crying out, how long, Lord, how long until until you take vengeance, until you judge? So why would they say how long? Because even in heaven, we're not completely happy because we're still waiting for the final victory over death until the bodies and the graves rise, right? Um, so if you look at my timeline, let me write, let me, let me draw this out. If you look at the timeline, here's present suffering. Okay, this is when you will die. You. 
will die. And then all those who are in Christ will ascend to heaven, right? Their souls. When I say ascend, I'm not talking about geographic ascending, but, you know, um, to enter into the realm of God, heaven, which is what we would call the intermediate state. And then we await for the final victory, the final glory, which will be the new heavens. Well, I'll just write new creation until all the world wakes up and is renewed and restored. So a lot of people are like, I'm waiting for this. No, you're waiting for that. This is a waiting period. We're still waiting even in heaven. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think you asked me about this before, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any follow-up question on this? Well, I guess like, um, you know, the SDAs, Seventh-day Adventists, they believe in like a... So sleep. sleep. Yeah, I, I looked it up a little bit. They mean something else. They mean some sort of unconscious existence. Right. Or unconscious, like, yeah. So then I guess my... Intermediate state, you're conscious. So I guess my, my question would be like, so there's a slight difference in that the the question is, or the difference between SDAs and, and us is that the soul immediately is in paradise. Yeah. As opposed to... But we're waiting for our bodies. Right. <coughs> so what Romans 8 is, what, what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, the redemption of our bodies, right? Body isn't, doesn't happen in heaven. We're still waiting. Partially why a lot of Christians <coughs> have like put all their hope in heaven, in this ethereal state, is because they're, they have a low view of the body. Like, ugh, body, yuck, yuck. Let's not forget. The second person of the Trinity has a body. He's honored the human body. The human body is not an icky, yucky thing. It's a wonderful, glorious thing. And we will gain we will gain it back. When Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't this floating spirit. What did he say to his disciples? Touch me. I'm hungry. What do you have to eat? Fish. Right? There's this wonderful passage in Luke. Let's eat some fish together. You know what that means? This resurrected future, we're going to eat, we're going to hug, we're going to dance. I don't know how to dance, but now I, I look forward to dancing with pizzazz and, <laughs> and, and elegance, you know? Uh, I don't actually particularly even like eating, which is probably <laughs> explains my physique. I find food to be relatively sad, tasting-like. But it, the, the future resurrection is spoken of as a banquet. Right? This incredible feast. Who loves to eat? I know Wade loves to eat. I will have Wade's taste buds, but glorified a thousand times more, and the food will be ten thousand times better. You know, that's what's awaiting us. So, um, can you give a little bit um, of insight as to like what the what the uh, people, the believers in the Old Testament, like? How does this kind of like play into that? The believers in the Old Testament are here, in heaven. So, like, uh, when it says, like, they will be, like, raised up into Abraham's bosom, what is that that really? Heaven. Why is that, like, his bosom? (coughs) Um, Bosom is just a metaphorical description of a place of warmth and comfort and happiness, right? Like, you know, all of us, we're all (coughs) grown adults, right? But if we're, like, hurting or something, we love it when our mom just, like, mothers us, right? you know, hugs us and we're in, in her bosom. That's the most wonderful oh, place. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, 
you obviously weren't hugged enough and you didn't get the face and just the warmth of blood you come I'll hug you my face. <laughs> So, so like uh, when when we pass on, uh-huh. our soul, you know, goes into that state. Yeah, it'll just be kind of like we will be with we will be with Abraham, Christ. Like we'll be free from Moses' soul. We, yeah, but we haven't escaped this. Right. Decay. The <coughs> earth is still broken. The earth is still a place of injustice, inequity, tragedy, evil. <coughs> right. So that hasn't been solved yet. So we're still waiting. All right, let me let me march on forward. All right, question number three. Now this is where I flesh out the when even more, and this is where we enter into greater controversy. So far, it hasn't been that that controversial. So let me just say with a big caveat, um, what I'm about to say, many of you may have may may end up disagreeing with me. In fact, I imagine most of you have been taught otherwise. So let me just say this: that this is a matter in which I think Christians can disagree, right? Um, it doesn't at all touch on, you know, the ordo, right? This part, we agree, all Christians should agree on this part, and then some disagreement about the when of this part, it's fine. So, so my caveat is don't hate me, right? <laughs> uh, I hope to persuade you, but if you're not persuaded, it's okay. I hope you still feel welcomed and not at all feeling bad, you know? Okay. Okay. Um... So, when do we enter into glory? When does the resurrection happen? The answer is when the king returns, when Jesus returns. Uh, famous passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's do that. Um, I will read it so that... Well, actually, let me have Cal read it, and I will interrupt you frequently. 1 uh, Thessalonians? Mm-hmm. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Right. So, he's saying we have a hope. Even for our brothers in Christ who uh, uh, we, don't, we don't grieve as if we don't have hope. He says, those who are asleep. So, what does asleep mean? Yeah. Harry, what does asleep mean? Died. Died, yes. Why describe death as sleep? Other than the fact that they both look like the same. Your, your body's having Right, but I mean, so what happens when you're asleep? <coughs> you eventually mm. wake up. <coughs> and therefore, what is that saying about death? You'll eventually rise. Rise to life, right? So, that's the language, okay? Uh, verse 14, um, tough. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Okay, so it's talking about Jesus will bring with him what? The souls in heaven, right? Who are asleep, who have died, right? For uh, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Okay, stop. So let's stop there. So Paul talks about two categories of people those who are asleep and those who are what? Who are alive, right? I don't know why I have to look up. We who are alive. Okay, who, who who are these people? Uh, people who are still alive. When the this would be like you and me, right? We're not dead. We're not in the. We're not in heaven, right? So it says right here. Okay. So we who are alive. Okay. Who are left until the coming of the Lord. Now, what is this coming of the Lord? 
this is critical. Okay, this is where the controversy begins. Okay, so the word coming of the Lord, the word coming is very important. Is the Greek word parousia. Have you heard this word, Wade? Yes. Harry? Yes. Very important word. Parousia has a technical meaning in the Greek. It's not, it doesn't just generically mean coming. It specifically means the coming of a victorious king back from battle. This, this whole imagery was so frequent that they had a technical word for it. The parousia of the emperor, of the king. So it's talking about when the king comes back to the city after this enormous victory, right? In which he's, he's parading his vanquished enemy before him, right? And so where are we now? Okay, uh, keep reading. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of archangels, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Okay, right. So, when the victorious king comes back, starting from a distance, he has people blowing. Why would he? Blow, why would they blow trumpets? To announce the return. Yeah, to announce the parousia, right? An army that's silent is a defeated army, right? A victorious army is just blaring, right? Because they're announcing they're coming back in victory. And so, what is so? What is the imagery of the parousia? Okay, the imagery is this. This is heaven. This is earth. The king comes back. Christ. Right? Trumpets are blaring. He's announcing his return, right? Um, and then keep going. Verse 16, I think. Oh, no, no. We're, uh, and then keep going. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And the dead in Christ will rise. So what is the dead in Christ will rise first? What is that talking about? Forget the word first for now. What about the dead in Christ will rise? What does that mean? Huh? Believers in Christ, but it says dead. So? Souls. Huh? The souls. Right. So, there are bodies that are dead. <coughs> right? They will rise. Meaning, not just rise physically, but they will what? They will resurrect. Right? So, this is the, this is the resurrection. <coughs> This is the resurrection. And then, uh, first, meaning um, um, this happens before what, what's going to happen next. And then, verse 17. Then we who are alive. Okay, so we're alive, right? So there are believers in Christ who are not yet dead, who are not like this. <laughs> we're standing. We're, we're still breathing. Okay, keep going. Who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah, um, so we will caught up together, so we will go out to meet him. These are um, Christians, okay? Now, uh, the imagery is what? The king is coming back, and then the, the trumpets blare, uh, the army shouts in proclamation of victory. The people of the city go out and line the... Line the uh, the pathway into the city, and they're cheering the king. It's this enormous, glorious celebration. Everyone's screaming with adulation and happiness and relief that they're not going to die, right? <laughs> um, and we'll be caught up together. So that word caught up 
in Latin is rapere. So what is this? This should look very familiar to you guys. What is this? Rapture. There you go. Okay, so I'm about to enter into controversy. Don't hate me. Okay? You may be free to disagree. Good Christians can disagree on this. All right. So the rapture. Now, what happens in the rapture? What happens next? So everyone agrees on this, right? We're caught up. Christ comes down. What happens next? What movement-wise? What happens next in the rapture? No. Well, yeah, there's tribulation, but... So that's good. So there's tribulation, right? So after the rapture is tribulation by seven years. By seven years of tribulation, meaning what happens in tribulation? There's wars. There's fighting. There's death. There's sin. There's rebellion. There's evil. So is this defeated? No. Life goes on. Earth goes on. Death goes on, right? After the rapture, and then what what else happens? Who's seen left behind, or who's seen thief in the night? Come on, what happens next? What happens to these Christians? They what? Where do they go? Location-wise. Heaven, right. So Christ whisks us up to heaven, right? All right? So in other words, he meets us, we meet him in the air, and then he takes us to heaven. That's the rapture. <coughs> Have I misinterpreted the rapture? I think I understand the rapture pretty well. Is that correct? No one disputes it. Okay. <coughs> Two major problems with this. Let's think about this imagery of the parousia, right? By the way, the word, um, where's, where's, where's the word? It says, um, we will meet the Lord. The word meet is also a technical Greek <coughs> word. It means to meet a king, a dignitary coming into the city, right? Now, what happens to the king when he's marching back from victory towards the city? Which direction does he go? Into the city, or does he do a U-turn? <laughs> Into the city. Yes. What kind of king? <clears throat> the trumpets are blaring. Everyone, they, you won the battle, yay! And the king rides up, and then he turns <laughs> the And then everyone like, leaves the city. <clears throat> That's what's happening. That's what the rapture is saying. The rapture says the victorious king comes back, and then he turns around and whisks everyone up, Star Trek style, back up to heaven. The other problem is that it says after the, after the appearance of the king, the victorious king, what happens? Death, bondage, futility, decay goes on. Where is this final victory that is promised at the coming of the king? It goes on. It's wait, we have to wait seven more years. And then it happens again, right? Does that make sense? So for those two reasons... Highly problematic. The, what's really going to happen is that we are greeting Christ, and Christ comes down with the armies of heaven. Heaven invades earth, and then we have new earth, new creation. The dead in Christ will rise. The world will be restored. Bondage and decay, all of that will end. And that is the final story. After, after the seven years of tribulation. No, there's no seven years of tribulation. Oh. When Christ comes back, that's it. There's victory. right? The king doesn't come back and say, seven years, okay, just wait seven more years. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the imagery. Um, um, so where did this idea of the rapture come from? 
the rapture idea came from dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. Okay? So what is this, what's the distinctive mark of dispensation? What's the distinctive thesis of dispensation? Wait. Uh, they believe that there is different ages in which God... Um, Simplified all the way down to oh, the basic Oh, it's very literal. No, 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 no. Israel and the church. Yes, there you go. So, dispensationalism says Israel and the church are two separate distinct entities. And all the prophecies of Israel in the Old Testament have yet to come true. And therefore, the church has to be evacuated out of heaven, out of earth, right? An evacuation, and then the seven-year tribulation allows for the uh, 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 is the is a prelude to the millennium, the thousand years in which finally all the prophecies of Israel will come true. So that's why dispensationalism created the need for the rapture. Before dispensationalism came to be, which is around 1850s, nobody had this theory. No Christian ever taught this. There is no confession that ever articulates this view. Because of dispensationalism, then it created this artificial need for the rapture because it had to create a separate history and destiny for Israel so that the church could be evacuated. But once you realize that Israel, the church is new Israel, and Israel is the church in the Old Testament, they're one people. There's no need to evacuate. All the prophecies of Israel have already come true in Christ, and therefore when Christ comes back victorious, wins the war. The victory soon. Any questions on that? On the rapture? So there's there's a, um, you, what you call a school of thought something, it's... Cognitology. Yeah, and there's, um, I mean, you, you left out the, a lot of people that believe in the millenni- millennium, so how do people distinguish between their schools of thought? Like, they call themselves, like, pre... Like <laughs> I don't want to get into that because it's going to be a long time, because uh, I want to talk about other things, but I will have an extended... Um, Sunday school. I was thinking like four or five series on <coughs> millennial views, eschatology. We'll, we'll go back to the rapture. Any other questions? No? All right. You don't hate me, right? <coughs> Wait, so if you disagree with me. So the, the seven years of tribulation that dispensationalists believe, mm-hmm. that that is taken from like old prophecy of Israel? Daniel, yeah. Oh, okay. Seven weeks. All right, all right, all right. And then the New Testament all the time talks about tribulation. So the way I look at tribulation is we're in the tribulation right now. Right? We're in times of period, difficulty, wars, rumors of wars. And finally the king comes back and squashes that, puts an end to that. The victorious, glorious, righteous reign of the king at last, the new earth. All the people praise him. Right. So let's keep going. First Corinthians 15. Um, let me read to you. Let me go fast. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What does perishable mean? David, what does perishable mean? Um, like it doesn't last forever. It yes, can something that can? Decay. Yes, right? So what is Paul saying here? Something that can decay cannot come into, cannot inherit the imperishable, cannot enter into glory, because glory is freedom from that, Right? So Paul's saying, <coughs> we in our current state, in our perishable decayed body, decaying bodies, I am the most advanced in decay among us. Well, now there's Tommy. <laughs> but, um, me and Tommy are, are the furthest ahead of you guys, but we cannot inherit the, 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 the kingdom of God in this state, right? But verse 51, but there's hope. This is amazing hope. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, right? We're not going to all die. 
but we shall all be changed. Everyone will be changed, all those in Christ, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. What's the trumpet? What does that remind you of? Parousia, right? So, which means 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, same event. This is talking about the same event, right? The trumpet will, the trumpet will blast, or the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, <coughs> imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And we'll all gain renewed, restored, glorified bodies. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We're going to live immortal lives in immortal bodies that cannot decay, that cannot break down. We can go rock climbing, and we don't. We can do um, what is it? Solo, freestyle. <laughs> you don't have to worry. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. Right? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When the trumpet sounds, death is defeated. That's the end of death. And so this, the, the theory of the rapture cannot be. Because death continues in the theory of the rapture. Right? People still die. The world still is in decay. The world is in, in a mess of sin and, and rebellion. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Uh, let me go to First John chapter... Two, um, uh, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, who is he? Jesus. When Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The word "coming" is the Greek word "parousia," right? So this is talking about his parousia, the King returning back from victory, right? Um, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, right? There's that idea of our status as, as sons of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know, uh, know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, listen, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, okay? So we haven't come to the fullness of our sonship and to our children's status but we know that when he appears, when he comes back, the second coming, the parousia, we shall be like him. How shall we be like him? We shall gain glorified bodies like him, be sinless like him, because we shall see him as he is. When we see Christ, we will be resurrected. We will gain this eternal glorified life. And everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Right? So Jesus' second coming is when glorification will happen is when we will come into this glory, the final resurrection, our glorification, new creation, the, the, the image of Revelation chapter 21, of new Jerusalem coming down. Right? In Revelation 21, there's the same image, new Jerusalem. Right? Coming down to earth. And it'll marry, heaven will marry earth. Heaven will invade earth. And it'll merge with earth. And no longer will we be separate from God, but God will dwell among us forever. Right? And so this life, this embodied life, um, will one day be restored, renewed, beautified, glorified. That's the hope. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, the hope of glory. Any questions? So, yes? Um, what do you do in heaven? <laughs> you, are you talking about the intermediate state? Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't say much. Uh, it talks about us waiting. So it's actually a waiting period. <coughs> but we will be in bliss because um, we'll be with the Lord. But we'll be with the Lord in a disembodied soul state. So we're still waiting for the final victory. 
We're, we're watching evil, injustice reign on earth, but we're saying one day the king will come back and everything will be restored. Does that answer your question? I think I think there's also like we're witnessing like like you said along with that we're witnessing what the church is doing as well. It says in Hebrews um, there's a cloud of witnesses that cheer us on. So I think that um, when we're in heaven we'll be looking down on our people that come after us and we'll be witnessing what God is doing there. Right, because the battle the, the battle is continuing to rage. Right, the, the kingdom of God and kingdom of Satan are locked in battle, but we know the victory is secure because Christ secured it for us on the cross. But we yet to come into it. Any any other questions? Where where do you, where do they find evidences that Israel and the church are separate entities? So this is where Wade's talking about literal. So every time it says Israel, it's talking about Jews. Right. Um, but the way I would understand it, the way covenant theology understands it, is Jew- Israel is faithful followers of God. Okay, let me give you a good example. Ruth. Was Ruth a Jew? No, she was a Moabitess. Is Ruth an Israelite? Yes. Right? What about Rahab? What about... Um, all kinds of Gentiles are always engrafted. Right. And those who are faithless are cut off. So Israel is always a community of believers, of those who know the Lord, which is identical with the church. So I guess my question is, where would people who fall under dispensationalism yeah. then distinguish that... Israel, whenever Israel is mentioned, is separate from the church. Like, where do they get that from? So, it all has to do with presuppositions. Their presupposition is that Israel always means, literally, the nation-state, ethnic, Jewish blood, Israel. But when when it's clearly kind of like... They would say it's not clear. They're saying you're playing fast and loose with scripture, (coughs) you're spiritualizing the text. The reason why dispensation came about is because preceding the 1850s, you had what's called the modernist controversy. So basically what happened was you had a bunch of liberal scholars saying, you know, the Bible's full of errors, you can't read it so literally. So dispensationalism was reacting to that and saying, no, everything's literal, everything is true, every word is correct, uh, the, bird, the, the Bible is uh, inerrant. So in my belief, they overcorrected. They went way overboard, and then they got rid of this beautiful theology that we've always had back to the Reformation that John Calvin, Martin Luther, all the reformers had always taught and believed. It goes back to Augustine, it goes back to all the early church fathers. They got rid of that because they were reacting to this modernist controversy. So that's, this is where fundamentalism comes from. The fundamentalists were reacting to, to, to this. <coughs> or, yes? Just a comment, this is another topic like justification that really excites me and yeah. I, I love it and I think as we meditate and focus on it, it it just automatically changes the way we live presently mm. if we're focusing on the new heavens and new earth as the ultimate goal. Mm. And I love when I learn that there's no marriage in heaven because I think that changes current like people who idol idolize marriage and, and think that's such a big deal. I mean, it is great and the importance of family, but it's not going to be that way. And have our in, final in spouse, our <laughs> ultimate spouse, is coming back. Yeah. He's yeah. going to sweep us in his arms. Yeah. And so. so all of us, even men, have to think of yourself as brides. 
Um, I love what it says in here, First Corinthians 15, last verse. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything we do in this world has meaning and value because this world will be redeemed. We're not going to be evacuated. We're not, we're not just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. Okay, but God is going to resurrect the Titanic. It's going to be this beautiful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this teaching of, of glorification. Um, of course, there is some uh, parts where all Christians uh, have disputes over, but, but we all agree, Lord, that you will win, that it is um, certain that Satan will be defeated, death will be defeated, that we will be with you always, that you will dwell among us, that there will be a new creation, a new heavens. And Lord, we pray that this hope would fill us, as Paul says, so that it makes us think of our present suffering as a slight momentary affliction. It is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare waiting for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.